we have talked about worship. We've talked about uh, spiritual formation generally. We've talked about uh, various ways of studying the word and taking the word into our lives. We've talked about memorization and meditation. Spent a week on the sacraments. Last week we talked about silence and solitude. And I said last week there was a specific reason for that. Uh, particularly uh, with regard to prayer. And we'll see why that's the case this morning and how silence and solitude opens up the way for prayer for us and helps us in a lot of ways that, um, that prayer is difficult. A couple quotes there for you that we'll look at again, both from Dallas Willard. One is grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. And so as we talk about the reordering of our desires and our loves We recognize that this is something that God does, but we put ourselves in the way of his grace. We give ourselves to the ways that uh, he, through his word, promises to to do this. So uh, the ways that the spirit works in and through our lives. So we're putting ourselves in the way of that. And that's kind of what the second quote gets at. We must seek out ways to live and act in union with the flow of God's kingdom life that should come through our relationship with Jesus. So we work in this process because God is at work. Uh, This process of sanctification in which we are made more and more like Jesus. Uh, This week and next, we're going to talk about prayer. Uh, This week will be really about the the difficulties of prayer and then sort of a foundational way forward. And then next week, we'll talk more about uh, uh, why we should pray and then how we should pray. So next week will be much more practical than this week. Well, although this week will be very practical, but kind of in a negative way. Um, and that it's, uh, we'll talk about the, uh, the difficulties of prayer uh, this week. Uh, and in general, too, so much of what I have today is from, I meant to bring it, forgot it, uh, this book called uh, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And I have it uh, cited there for you. We have some, we should have some out on the book table. If not, we can definitely get more. It is a fantastic book on prayer. Much of what I'll say is coming from that this morning. It's really good on this sort of stuff. It has some helpful practical things as well that we'll talk some about. There are places where it could, I mean, it could, where it needs more in terms of like what, what prayer could look like for us. But it's a really, really great book. One of the, uh, one of the most, probably the best book on prayer that I've read or that's been most influential to me. So... Uh, so most of this is from that. Okay, getting us started here. Why is prayer so hard? What are some of the, the greatest struggles and obstacles that we face when it comes to prayer? To prayer? Mental distractions. Okay. Yeah, I, I, my guess is that a lot of this will overlap with our difficulties with silence and solitude as well. Kind of the, uh, the default to-do list that begins to magically form in your head. When you try to quiet yourself to pray. What else? Busyness. Yeah, just busyness in general. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Ben. Um, I think sometimes we view it as a chore, and so we're kind of disinclined to do it because we think it won't be as effective when we don't approach it the right way. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, it seems like a task. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, that it's a chore. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we don't see the necessarily even the benefit or joy of it, and so it becomes kind of a chore more than anything else. Yeah, that's a great connection there. What else? Yeah, yeah, and that probably even connects uh, to the previous point that if we don't see the benefit of it, we're not going to do it, <laughs> and we're not going to prioritize it for that reason. I think sometimes our you know, our, our sin, you know, we want to pray for something we want to have happen. 
but at the same time not ready to have God's will be done. Yeah, yeah. And that whole question, I mean, it, it, maybe we don't consciously think this, but maybe uh, just lying beneath the surface, this thought of if God is really sovereign like we talk about, then what real difference does my prayer life make? I mean, like, why, why should I do this? God's really going to do this anyway, right? And we say, uh, we, we qualify all of our great asks with, but thy will be done, um, which can start to feel like uh, that's really what's going to happen. And we're kind of just going through the motions on this other talk of asking for, for big things. What else? I don't know exactly where this fits in, but I keep thinking of in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, when he would try, you know, the, the just, it fits maybe with distractions, but Satan doesn't yeah. want us to pray. Oh, he will do whatever in our brain to get us to do anything but that. Yes, yeah. And there's a great section in there where um, where he says the wor- one of the worst things because this is you know the devil writing to his uh, to his nephew, nephew. yeah, yeah. Uh, and he says the worst thing is when the enemy talking about the Christian continues to pray even when he doesn't feel like praying, yeah. and that that's like the worst thing for uh, for Satan and for what he would try and do to us, which I think is really really good. That even when we don't feel like it, that we pray would be a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guilt. Guilt. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we'll talk some about that. How you kind of get going with it, and then you uh, because it's so hard. We end up not doing it, and then we just and we feel guilty about it, and it's this cycle that just kind of perpetuates itself. Yeah. Um, well, one of the great phrases that Paul Miller has in his book early on is that a he says that a quiet cynicism and spiritual weariness sets in when we actually face these difficulties of our prayer life, and I think this is especially true if you've been a Christian for a while, uh, where you, you can kind of fall into a rut. And just as there's a glorious way in which these practices are formative for us, as we give ourselves to these things, we are shaped and we, we develop habits over time and God works through those things. So there's this, uh, maybe not, yeah, I guess regression would be the right word, but we can set habits and, and become formed in negative patterns as well. And, and so it can kind of uh, it can feel as though we're getting out of control in some ways with our lack of prayer, and it just perpetuates itself. So here are some, uh, some reasons. Most of these are from Paul Miller. Some have been, I've adapted them a little bit. But here, here's some reasons that I think prayer is hard in ways that, uh, that I think we could probably identify with here. The first is we are self-occupied and cynical. And so this is the situation where you might force yourself to pray for a time, and you might even come in with really good intentions, and then after 15 seconds even, your mind wanders to the to-do list. Uh, you think of all the things you need to get done, and so you drop those things down because you don't want to forget them. And then all of a sudden, uh, you, you think of another thing, and then that leads to a sense of anxiety, like, oh I, oh, I need to do that, and now I'm thinking about needing to do that in a big way. And then you realize you're not praying anymore. And, and then that guilt sets in, and you think, something's got to be wrong with me. I might as well just get up and get something done if this is the way it's going to be. So... Uh, so a quote from Paul Miller there, the ones without any references except for a page number are uh, in reference to a praying life. It says, praying exposes how self-preoccupied we are 
and uncovers our doubts. It's easier on our faith not to pray. After only a few minutes, our prayers in shambles, barely out of the starting gate, we collapse on the sidelines, cynical, guilty, and hopeless. And I think this is similar to the ways that we would approach uh, silence and solitude, that it exposes these things to us when we stop and we slow down, and that makes it hard. Uh, Secondly, we live in a nonstop culture. He says that American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn how to pray. We're so busy that when we do slow down to pray, We find it uncomfortable. Think back to last week and talking about our discomfort with silence in general. And this is very insightful. He says, we prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we are wasting time. Every bone in our body screams, get to work. It doesn't feel like it's very productive at all for us to stop and do this. I mean, I feel this Frequently, when you think about preparing to teach or preach or something like that and thinking about the huge value of stopping to pray for this process of uh, of expositing the word and then how it's going to be received, that God would be at work in our hearts and all these things, rather than digging into a commentary or something like that. That is that's very hard to say this is really more important at this point to do this this part of the work. Because we want to do, 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 and produce. Thirdly, and this one's not familiar, this is really more from a kind of a thought from Dallas Willard, but we don't combine prayer with other practices. And I, I found this really insightful. Uh, this is what he says. This is why we need to combine it with other disciplines and why we're talking about it in this whole suite of practices. It says, but prayer will not be established in our lives as it must be for us to flourish unless we are practicing other disciplines such as solitude and fasting. In many Protestant churches, prayer and Bible study are held up as the activities that will make us spiritually rich. But very few people actually succeed in attaining spiritual richness through them and indeed often find them to be intolerably burdensome. The open secret of many Bible-believing churches is that a vanishingly small percentage of those talking about prayer and Bible reading are actually doing what they're talking about. They've not been shown how to change their life as a whole, permeating it with appropriate discipline so that prayer and Bible reading will be spiritually successful. This is why we talked about silence and solitude last week, and we'll talk about fasting and feasting in two weeks after we get done with prayer. Uh, and, and I think that is really helpful as to how these other, and I don't remember, I think it was Willard, well, maybe it was Calhoun, who says that silence and solitude is a container discipline because it opens up the way and creates space for these other disciplines to, uh, to be practiced in, in substantial ways. And I think that this is a really insightful, uh, insightful comment on Willard's part here. Question? Yeah. Um, I know there are some... Uh, Well, yeah, I think uh, for Willard writing from a, uh, I mean, he's, he was actually a Southern Baptist, uh, but just from an evangelical perspective, I think he, you would just say that evangelical churches would qualify as Bible-believing churches in his mind. And if you think about evangelical churches generally, and it's not that mainline churches don't care about the Bible, um, but certainly in evangelical circles, there's huge, especially in American evangelicalism, there's huge emphasis on private Bible reading and private uh, prayer. And so that's, I think, what he's what he's talking about there. Yeah, yeah. I have a question. 
Yeah, go ahead, Max. In general, we'd say, and we'll talk some about this next week, but in general, I'd say we, we know that God can answer prayer and does answer prayer from his word. In terms of... Yeah, yeah, he, it's certain that he does answer prayer because of what he says in his word, but to your, uh, to your specific question to say, uh, I think it's very difficult to look at specific things and know with certainty this was an answer to prayer. But, and Paul Miller's good on this, he actually talks about, um, and we can look at this some next week, talking about uh, James 4, where uh, James talks about you ask, because, or you don't have because you don't ask, uh, or Jesus talks that way, and then, uh, and then there's a, a problem with asking, I'll just jot it down here. Yes, yeah, yeah, asking selfishly and not asking, yeah. Yeah, Romans 8 with uh, the uh, Spirit interceding for us. Um, so I, I think we have to be humble in the way in which we would look at surrounding things and know whether God has answered in a certain way or not. Uh, but I don't, I mean, I, 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 it is true that he does answer our prayers. One of the things that Paul Miller recommends and is really helpful is uh, he advocates this prayer card sort of method, which is nothing that fancy. It's just writing down specific requests and things that you would pray for regularly. The huge benefit of that being that as you go back to those things and continue to pray for them, you start to see things that are answered from your prayers. Whereas if you're just kind of shooting from the hip and just praying extemporaneously uh, anytime, then a lot of the time you miss the ways in which God has actually answered your prayers in very specific ways, but because we haven't kept track of them in any way, we miss them. So that, I mean, that's a partial answer. I think that maybe in terms of the Jews not praying, the, the Israelites not praying to, to God, that, that would be a call to us to continue to uh, return to his word and pray according to his word. Well, and the, the Jews were in sin. Right. Your, your prayers aren't going to be answered if you're in open sin. Yeah. Well, and even and that's why Jesus said, you know, forgive, you know, forgive me. Let's 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 get this alignment made. Right? Yeah. Well, and in First Peter three, in the word to husbands and wives, there's that kind of weird phrase to husbands again, uh, to bear with your wife uh, as the weaker vessel, and and then he says at the end that he says for the sake of your prayers. Um, yeah, that your prayers may not be hindered, which is uh, which I think is helpful to say. Yeah, uh, yeah, he says of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And that's the, actually the, the fundamental point that I was getting at. Yeah. Before we say we're praying, we have to make sure that uh, God is looking at us favorably, that we're not uh, his enemy. Yes, yes, and that's, I mean, the... The glory of the gospel is that we are in Christ and and as praying in the name of Jesus, as Darwin's talked about many times, is that you go we go to the father clothed in Christ. And so the prayers that he hears from us 
are uh, are through Jesus as our high priest, the one who's interceding at the right hand of the father, the spirit that's at work in us, praying for us in ways that, that we're that, that we can't groans too deep for words. Um, but there is there, there, uh, there, there is an aspect of this where we certainly um, where and you think of Psalm, think of Psalm 32 as well, where David has unconfessed sin that he's harboring and he talks about the weight your hand was heavy upon me. Think of like somebody pressing down on your chest. And so and, and Peter's words in first Peter three, so that there is a place to say uh, our unconfessed sin matters uh, in our prayer life. But again, that doesn't mean we don't pray. It just means uh, pray the Lord's prayer and take seriously the part where we're saying uh, confessing our debts forgives our trespasses, forgives our debts. We'll talk some. We talk some about that uh, next week. Let's. Uh, that's a great question. Let's keep moving here. Uh, four. We'd rather be self-sufficient. This is uh, similar to what we talked about in non- nonstop culture, but I think this gets at more of a structural, um, kind of the institutional reality of uh, us being Americans in some ways. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we can do life without God, praying seems nice, but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it's quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. This is a uniquely American struggle, I think. There are places in, uh, in third world countries where you're praying for your daily bread in a very literal way. And uh, and that's just not the case for us. And that that makes prayer more difficult. Uh, It's harder because, yeah, we we talk about even like a church plant. It requires resources. We, by God's grace, have resources at this church. And it could be very easy to think, yeah, we're going to do this. Oh, and we're going to pray about it, too. Um, We have these things. And so it becomes easy to think uh, it's very easy to be self-sufficient and not see the need to pray in the midst of it. Uh, Fifthly, prayer seems odd. If you just stop and think, sometimes it feels kind of like almost like you're talking to yourself, even uh, if we're real honest. Um, And if we, we don't really know what it is like for God to respond to us in those moments. Okay, so the ultimate problem, and this is uh, this is from Paul Miller. This is his language, which I think is helpful. By the way, he's the son of Jack Miller, who is the author of the Sonship Curriculum, for those who are familiar with that. And so there's that emphasis here as well. Ultimate problem is this, he says. Prayer is hard because we have a dysfunctional relationship with our Heavenly Father. So in other words, we've lost sight of the grace of the gospel or lost sight of of the relational context of prayer in that we are sons of the king. God is our father. And I think this is hugely helpful when we think about our prayer life. Uh, there's, there is huge bearing on our, uh, or our prayer life has, hu- let me start over. Our view of God, how we conceive of God, has a huge bearing on our prayer life. And that's the point that he's getting at here, that we've lost sight of what it means to be a child of the king. A um, couple quotes there that are going to be familiar to many, many of you. The, this uh, blessing of adoption and the way that uh, uh, the way the Bible speaks of that. John four twelve. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That should be one twelve, I think. Yeah. 
Uh, and then uh, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And this is huge here. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so we can forget this kind of tender, fatherly love that God has for us. And that that has a huge bearing on how and whether we would approach God in prayer. If we think of ourselves as slaves, it's going to be a whole lot more difficult to come to our master uh, than it is to come to our father as sons. A couple of ways I think that we develop these inaccurate views of God is um, one is that we make God in our own image. And so there's this quote from this is from a friend of Anne Lamott's. It's in one of her books. It's her priest friend, Tom. I don't know his last name. He says this, you know, you have a God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> and then the other I think the other way that these view, that are our inaccurate views of God are developed is that we, we make God in the image of our own earthly father. Which is the way God intended, I mean, the, the way he created us in this familial connection. Obviously, sin uh, perverts that and messes that up. Uh, there, there are glorious ways in which a father can model, obviously in limited uh, ways, the love of our Heavenly Father. And so uh, people that have come from a family where, this, where a father has done that, um, there, there are huge benefits in that way, but... Uh, for many of us, it's not the case that, that we come from that with that sort of father. And that has a bearing on how we view God as father. Is it just a concept in general? Um, let's look here at, uh, at Luke 11. Yeah, this is good. We'll spend a little bit of time here. Uh, just a few points uh, from this parable that are, are really helpful. This is Jesus speaking here, and it gets to how we view God and how that impacts our prayer life. So uh, we'll read this together. Verse 5 of Luke 11, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Verse nine, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Uh, if you look at those first few verses there, verses five through eight, by the way, the point of this is that God is not like this man in bed. Um, if you think of this culture as this uh, honor and shame culture, there was an obligation then to receive guests. Uh, this man comes, though, in the middle of the night and is rude. I think that there's debate as to whose impudence this is uh, referencing here in, in verse eight. Uh, it's actually, I, I believe it's that of the man, the friend knocking, who's coming at this inconsiderate hour and is expecting this of the man. So the only reason that the friend in bed is going to actually help him 
is because he's almost embarrassed for his friend, the shame of his friend and what he's doing and coming in the middle of the night. The point, though, is that God is not like this man who's in bed. Um, God is one that we can approach at any point. Uh, and so Jesus sort of pushes back on our view that, that God is a distant father from us, uh, that, that he doesn't want, that, that he doesn't delight in hearing us, that it's kind of a, you're annoying me kind of thing. That's not who God is. And that's one of his points he's making. Another point he's making is that God promises to respond to us. And that's that section in verses eight through 10 with this kind of classic that we'll look at again in Matthew's gospel as well. Uh, where Jesus says, ask, uh, ask and you will find, or uh, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. God delights uh, in, in responding to us in this way. And it's tempting to think of God as sort of a disappointed father or one who would not want to respond to us. Jesus says, no, he delights in hearing us. And then 11 through 13 uh, highlights his generosity to us. And pushes back against the view that would say that God is stingy in some way. His point here is that, uh, yeah, we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our kids. When, when, our, when our kids ask us uh, for something, we, we don't give them. We ask for an egg, we give them a scorpion. Or uh, ask for a fish, we're going to give them a serpent. Any father would be terrible to do that, right? And you know that the pull that your children have on your heart uh, how much more so for God, the father, the perfect father, as we come to him and ask for things. And so that that's that's what Jesus wants us to understand here. And then another good quote from Paul Miller. Deep down, we just don't believe God is as generous as he keeps saying he is. Like there's a lot of truth to that. So uh, so big picture here. Uh, what Paul Miller and I think what Jesus says a lot, particularly in and through parables that regard prayer, is that the solution isn't some sort of technique. The solution is, I mean, we're going to talk about specifics next week, which are very helpful. But there's a more fundamental way forward that we need to grasp. And it's that we need to see that we are children of the father. And that that, that, that relational context transforms the way that we would approach the way that we would approach prayer. Uh, even we would like maybe a different solution than this. Uh, this is the one that that is ultimately transformative for us. Uh, OK, so that the difficulties of prayer, then uh, what we'll finish up with here in the rest of our time are is the, the delight of prayer and a couple different things that we'll do here. One is to sort of uh, this is a helpful thing from from Miller is to paint a picture of what prayer could be. Uh to kind of give you, to give us a glimpse, like a, the, the vision of, of where we're headed and what it could be. It says, the praying life feels like dinner with good friends. The praying life feels like our family mealtimes because prayer is all about relationship. It's intimate and hence at eternity. And this is helpful. We don't think about communication or words, but about whom we are talking with. Prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect to God. And you think about this in your in your conversations with other people. You're not as much thinking about the words you're using with this person as you are about that other person more fundamentally, right? I mean, that those two things are connected, but uh, the focus is on the other person and, and this relationship that you have with them. And that's what he's getting at there. We can kind of focus in on the words and, and our communication rather than the person. 
Uh, the praying life is interconnected with all of life. And it's, it's easy to think this only pertains to like our times of Bible study or devotional life. Uh, this is what he says. We don't learn to pray in isolation from the rest of our lives. Since praying life is interconnected with every part of our lives, learning to pray is almost identical to maturing over a lifetime. So what does it feel like to grow up? Well, it's a thousand feelings on a thousand different days. This is what learning to pray feels like. So don't hunt for a feeling in prayer. Deep in our psyches, we want an experience with God or an experience in prayer. Once we make that our quest, that is a quest for this experience, we lose God. You don't experience God. You get to know him. You submit to him. You enjoy him. He is, after all, a person. Consequently, a praying life isn't something you accomplish in a year. It's a journey of a lifetime. I think that's helpful, too, in the context of relationship. Yeah, Steve. Um, this is kind of a little bit off topic, but um, uh, as far as prayer out loud, alone, mm-hmm. or prayer silently, mm-hmm. uh, I know most of my prayers, I pray silently, when the God is stopping you can hear them. Uh, can you touch on that as far as what, uh, I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I, I pray out loud. Si- or I pray out loud silently. No, <laughs> I pray out loud alone. And it's we'll actually talk some about that next week. Uh, Dave Pallison uh, really recommends and, and then Paul Miller picks up on that recommends or suggests at least Paul Miller doesn't do this, but he suggested as a possibility of praying out loud. Because for that very reason, you kind of it's not this swirl of thoughts and it recognizes that I'm praying to a personal God. Uh, And so I think it's for me, that is hugely helpful to pray out loud. It requires you getting in the appropriate context um, in order to do that as an individual. But uh, that's an excellent point. And I think it's a way that um, that helps us to realize it's not that God doesn't hear us when we pray silently, but that it, it for our sake, I think it's really helpful to pray out loud, even individually. Um. Number three, becomes aware of the story. Here's what uh, Miller means by this. If God is sovereign, then he's in control of all the details of our lives. If he's loving, then he's shaping and ordering those details for good. If he's all wise, then he's not going to do everything that we want because we don't know what we need all the time. And that's important to remember when we're thinking about prayer, that God is weaving this bigger story. And I think that helps our expectations as we come to prayer, that it's not something that's magic here. We need to remember that he is sovereign over all things. Our prayers do and are a part of his sovereign work in the world and that they do accomplish things. Uh, But we need to remember that he's loving and he's all wise. And so uh, if we don't see specific answers to prayer, it's not because he's not good to us. It's actually because he's so good to us that he's not answering our prayers in those ways, as difficult as that is. Uh, Number four, it gives birth to hope. Because my father controls everything I can ask and he will listen and act. Since I'm his child, change is possible and hope is born. Uh, This begins to break through our cynicism when we actually believe that God is at work in the world and in our lives. It can give birth to hope in that way. We know this because of the cross. We know that this is uh, there is a God who hears us um, and is working all things together for our good. Number five, it becomes integrated. 
this is helpful as a, uh, although for us it's probably not as big a deal. If we were seeking a contemplative, after we talked about silence and solitude, if we were talking about going the complete route of isolation and withdrawal to have this huge contemplative silent experience all the time, that's not what Jesus intends for us. Um, he and, and this is the, the example of Jesus is that he does withdraw, as we saw last week. But obviously, that's because he is so involved in all these other ways. And that's the way that uh, a praying life is supposed to look as well, that there are these times of silence and solitude. But it's not as though our prayer life then ceases to be prayer when we are busy in the world and our uh, and we're interacting with people. And we're praying in uh, quicker, uh, more off-the-cuff sort of ways. Uh, and so it's integrated in the whole of our lives. And then six, it reveals our hearts. Our hearts are exposed, as we saw early on, but they're also changed by what, uh, by what prayer requires of us and what prayer does. As you develop your relationship with your Heavenly Father, you'll change. You'll discover nests of cynicism, pride, and self-will in your heart. You'll be unmasked. None of us likes being exposed. Again, this is what happens with silence and solitude. Uh, we have an allergic reaction to, to, to dependency, but this is the state of the heart most necessary for a praying life. A needy heart is a praying heart. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. Really, really helpful. Okay, uh, learning to pray like children, we'll just we'll fly through these. The, these will work as... Uh, I mean, this is exactly what Jesus says. And this we see in Mark 10. They were bringing children to him and he might, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked him. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children, little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And Miller in that quote before makes the point that for us, this is a beautiful scene that you look at like the Jesus Storybook Bible, you think of like children coming to Jesus, and it is a beautiful scene. But there was this uh, in the first century, children were not uh, going to say like over, I don't want to say overvalued. They weren't worshipped almost. Youth wasn't worshipped like it is for us. And we've got a healthy love of our children, but then it can become too much, can become idolatrous even. Uh Children were not valued in this culture. And so there was more controversy to these children coming to Jesus. And that's why a reason the disciples were trying to get him away. Like, stop bothering him. This is not for you. Okay. And so Jesus says, no, come to me. Uh, Become like little children. And think about this with regard to prayer then. Jesus wants us to be without pretense when we come to him in prayer. Instead, we often try to be something we aren't. We begin by concentrating on God, but almost immediately our minds wander off in a dozen different directions. Problems of the day push out our well-intentioned resolve to be spiritual. We know that prayer isn't supposed to be like this, so we give up in despair. Uh, I think that that's helpful to consider. Uh, we must learn to come messy. Uh, Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. It says the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. We know that to become a Christian, shouldn't we, we shouldn't try to fix ourselves up. We can confess that, right? But when it comes to praying, we completely forget that. We'll sing the old gospel hymn just as I am, but when it comes to praying, we, just, we don't just come as we are. We try, like adults, to fix ourselves up. Private personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of legalism. 
In order to pray like a child, you might need to unlearn the non-personal, non-real praying that you've been taught. We must learn to ask like children too. Uh, and then the, from the Sermon on the Mount there, Matthew 7, which is the parallel passage to what we read in Luke 11. Uh, great thoughts here. I mean, think about how children, the, the, the way that children ask, their persistence, the simplicity uh, the earnestness of their asking. That's what this should look like for us as well. Uh, and then we must learn to believe like children. Children are supremely confident of their parents' love and power. Instinctively, they trust. And that's a lot of what Jesus is getting at, I think. They believe their parents want to do them good. If you know your parent loves and protects you, it fills your world with possibility. You just chatter away with all that is in your heart. Uh, And we must learn to spend time with our father. This is a lot of what we had talked about with uh, meditation on scripture, recognizing that we need to be with God, that that prayer is not just intercessory. Prayer is not just supplication. It's not just reading lists of prayer, working through that. It is that, but there's more to it than that. And that's another reason that silence and solitude are so important. So we're trying to learn to be with God in these ways in a full orbed relationship. It's not that our requests like children are, are wrong, actually, the, to the contrary. But there's there's a lot to this more than just uh, just asking. Uh, and then finally, uh, we must learn to pray like Jesus prayed, which is what we will talk about next week. We'll look some at, at his patterns of prayer. Uh, that Jesus learned to pray like a first century Jew learned how to pray. They had set times of prayer. They prayed the Psalms. They prayed scripture. We'll talk about that next week. They'll, they'll talk, or we'll talk some about um, some different ways in which that could be helpful for us and give us a framework to, um, to do sort of what Dallas Willard says and put some sort of structure in place that can sustain us that goes beyond just your desire, your your desire in the moment to pray or not to pray, which is pretty fleeting, at least for me. Uh, a few questions for reflection for you. Uh, obvious recommended reading <laughs> based on this. Uh, is this book by Paul Miller, A Praying Life? What's fantastic about this book, too, is that the chapters are short enough to where you can actually, you could read one each morning or whenever you have some sort of devotional time. And it's not overwhelming. They're they're great. Um, they're great, short, accessible chapters that, as you can see from these quotes, are very honest, and uh, I think you'd find very refreshing. Let me uh, let me close in prayer for us.